The following episode of Fofop is rated MA. It contains alternating hosts, a rotating roster of guests, and mild course language. Fofop advises that it is not suitable for anyone under the age of 15, or anyone who came here looking for one of those highbrow NPR-type podcasts. Minors must be accompanied by a parent or guardian. This is John Deeg speaking. And welcome to Fofop. I'm Will Anderson, and uh, joining me for the very first time, first time Fofop guest. Very happy to have him here. Uh, it is Ben Russell. Welcome to the show, Ben. Oh, thank you so much, Will. It's great to be here. Yeah, that's the official bit. That was that was very formal, wasn't it? Like I don't really, I, don't, I haven't had a new guest on for a while, so I, I didn't really know how I was meant to start this. Um, it's nice to have you here, uh, mate. Uh, the reason we were actually originally going to talk is that you have a, a new te- well you've done a pilot for a tv show for channel 10 uh which is going to be part of their pilot week which was going to be in a couple of weeks and we were timing this so beautifully to tell people about this uh show that you're involved in uh but they've moved it date not confirmed yet of when the pilot week is going to be up and people are going to be able to watch this on 10 play but let's talk about the show first because i think it'll be a good way for us to get into other topics anyway tell me about this show that you have been involved in, that you've made a pilot for, for uh, for 10 Play, for Pilot Week? Uh, well, it's uh, hosted by myself and uh, uh, Genevieve. Jen? Jen Fricker? Yep. Yep. And uh, it is, we get two comics um, and they just write material for each other and yeah. perform it in front of an unsuspecting crowd. So they don't yeah. know the now, crowd. They don't. They don't write good material for each other, though. This is the important <laughs> bit, right? Yeah. Like, this is not like, hey, this is fantastic, guys. We've got uh, Judith Lucy in to write a set for, uh, for, for you know, Jen Fricker. That's not how the show works. No, no, it's not. It's called Time to Die, and uh, yeah, they they try and make it as painful an experience um, for the other person, and. Uh, and it, it worked. It really is. Uh, like when people, uh, I've got a very small involvement in the first episode, uh, but uh, when people see the first episode, which I have seen the pilot episode, I think that people will be able to, A, get a real insight into how painful a comedian's death on stage is, <laughs> but also how many different ways you really can die. So now the idea of intentionally dying is that something that you have ever done because there are certain comedians i'm going to name one because i don't think he would mind me naming him because this is very much what he used to do on stage there was a comedian by the name of nick sun who is one of the one of the funniest natural anti-comedians that i have ever seen on stage but like his whole shtick would be that he would come out on stage and he had the absolute skills to be able to control a crowd to actually kill on stage but instead what he would do was try to dig himself the biggest possible hole that he could dig and then somehow try to then dig himself out of that hole have you been are you that sort of person have you ever walked on stage and thought i'm going to make this as bad as i possibly can first oh yeah yes in yeah but i didn't set out that way it's usually like in a smaller room and someone's pissed me off in the audience. And I'm just like, you know what? I'm taking this whole thing down. <laughs> <laughs> it's my version of having a tantrum on stage. Just like, I'm going to I'm gonna make this a bad 
time for me and for you. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. You, you think you're breaking up with me? Well, I'm breaking up with you, actually. I don't think you understand this. I, I quit. I quit. You can't fire me. Yeah, because I kind of went through, especially when doing this show, I wanted to, I think it's important to be comfortable. Like, it's just in stand-up in general, to be comfortable in it, in it like that silence and when things don't work and not to freak out. And so I kind of just went through a period where I was like, you know, if you're bombing, don't just relax and and try and enjoy it somehow. Okay. So how do, yeah, tell me about that feeling then, because I I will say this very openly and honestly, I've done badly enough, enough times in my career when I've been trying really, really hard to not, to not actually intentionally try to make it shit. Like often, like often it's been shit enough. Yeah. This is the case now where I'm just like, I just want to do well. But th- this was a little while back and it was just in like smaller rooms, you know, open mics, um, places where you'll probably die anyway. Um, and I just kind of wanted to, I just wanted to feel it. <laughs> and what does it feel like? Like tell people to you what that feeling of being up on stage and your whole job is to entertain people and you're not. You're not entertaining people. It, I mean, it's awful. The uh, the initial kind of panic sets in. That first panic sets in when something doesn't work, and then you try and like, no, everything's fine because you don't want to. You don't want to look like you're lost or that you're f- afraid because you don't want to. Sh- the audience will are like they'll eat it up. That fear. So I just I don't know. So you kind of got to dampen that and then just kind of go okay this is happening (laughs) this is just happening and you just have to accept it you have to accept that they're not going to like you it's just about acceptance and stuff and not to fight it and you're like well i'm just a i'm just some dude now i'm not even a comic i'm just a person and in front of people and i'm unimpressive I'm I'm just I'm just the boy standing in front of an audience asking them to like me. Why won't you like me? <laughs> it sucks, but I you know you have to like. I felt like I had to just really. I wanted to feel it on purpose. If I had a time machine, I think that I honestly would go back and encourage myself to die more early to take the risks that meant that I died more early because, of course, you're so terrified about doing badly and doing badly stick. I mean, I have – there's a gig I did on the Gold Coast, so the Twin Towns Arts Centre, that I walked off and was like, I'm never never coming back to this place. I'm sorry. This has been a mutual breakup. They hated me. I hated them. I'm just never going to come back to this place. And I only recently – went back there. It was for a flood fundraiser for the area that I live in. It had been through massive floods and they were doing a big flood fundraiser. And it was great. It was like we earned, like we raised $70,000 for the local community. It was a really good reason. But even then, as I walked on that stage that night, I was like, this better fucking go well. I am here for a good fucking reason and this better fucking go well. This better not be as bad as last time. How come you had such a bad time the first time? I've thought about it a lot and I'm still not 100% sure. The real, I think the, the main reason was out of my hands. It had been a long night and I was on last and they'd been drinking pretty heavily and just by the time I was on, they were done, you know? Like they'd had enough entertainment, they'd had enough to drink, they really needed me to bring it home and I think just, I don't know what it was, like the material I chose or the way I tried to relate to them or the fact that I didn't 
probably because it was the last night of the night and it had been a pretty good night. Like I, I just kept thinking, oh, well, I'll get them back with this next bit. This next bit will get them back on board. And every time I did the next bit, I'd be like, it was, it was like I had, I, I guess it must have felt like what the um, commanders on the day of the Gallipoli raid must have felt like <laughs> as they know they had landed on the wrong beach and they, they knew that they were sending those young men out to their almost certain deaths, but anyway, that the battle needed to continue. And each each one of those precious jokes, those jokes that had lived with me, that had served me well for years, I knew that I had to send them. I had to send them out there to be massacred alongside their friends. Those poor boys. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, every year on that date, I do lay a little wreath at that venue (laughs) just for those. For the fallen that day, who gave their lives so brilliantly, there is nothing worse than that feeling. Like when you're when something doesn't go well, and then the the joke that meant to, that's meant to get them back doesn't go. That's when panic sets in for me a little bit. <laughs> I I always have one early in the set. Like I mean, like hopefully very much in the first sort of you know two or three minutes traditionally. There's like one joke that I'm like, okay, this is the banger. This is the one that. You know, I will just determine basically if I've got them or if I haven't got them for the rest of the night. Uh, but I also have one of those, I would hope, about every three minutes, there's got to be one that I'm like, this is a showstopper. Like, you know, if I don't have like a real kind of showstopping joke every three minutes and every three minutes, that champion would step up to the, step up, like Steph, Steph Curry uh, would step up to the free throw line where he's never missed before and then he would just like throw it over the backboard and <laughs> just be like, I don't know what just happened. But that one didn't work either. Ah, uh, fuck. It is terrifying. Yeah, and I, but I, I agree with what you were saying initially. Like, I think there's something, I sort of went through a stagnation period where I was like, because I was afraid to do new material because I did, I just wanted to do well. And it can kind of make you scared of it a little bit. You yes. just want to do well. And so I think just allowing yourself to suck. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean, but then the idea of basing an entire show around this, like to be able to say to comedians, hey, you know the worst thing of your job. We're, we're going to make an entire show about the worst thing of your job. Could you please willingly sign up? to being part of this thing that is the worst part of your job. Like, how has it been? I mean, I know that you're not necessarily the one who has to be out there recruiting the people to be part of the show, but like from from seeing it and from experiencing it alongside those people and knowing those people, what do you observe the experience is and why do people say yes to even doing it in the first place? I think it sounds fun. Mm-hmm. The, the You probably say yes to it. I would say yes to it for the prospect of, torturing someone else because you get to write (laughs) you get to write material for some people you know and and so you tailor make that material for them and that room and that situation and it's just absolute it would be so much fun to write a terrible set what what do you think your where would you start Okay, so here's what I will say firstly. Like one of the things that I'm least proud of in my entire life, and I hate that there are certain comedians who tell this story all the time who are around at the time because they think it's very funny. And it's one of those things that I look back on and I'm embarrassed by the hubris I showed in this moment, right? Like, but here it is. This is the story, um, is that there was this comedian when I first started out 
who I was convinced had great jokes but just did not know how to deliver those jokes, right? And so one night at a gig, when he had left the gig, I got up on stage and did his material but made it work. And to me, like, I think that I inherently understand, like, about people what makes their act work or not work. And so my worry would be, that I would be too cruel. That's like, it's like doing roasts. Like I, I know the power that I have to be incredibly cruel to somebody if I need to be. I don't want to be. I don't want to use it. I don't want to be forced into this situation, you know what I mean? Like, but, so give me an example. I, if I was going to come on your show, like give me an example of who that I, I would be paired up with and then that might give me a better example of who you'd like me to see write bad material for or put it in a comfortable and I'll I'll tell you what I would write for them. Okay, well well think about some, you know, um who would you do for okay, say theoretically mm. it would be for uh Tom Gleason. Okay. All right. That's good. Okay. Okay. So Tom Gleason's natural position is high status, right? That's where all these jokes are. All these jokes are like high status, I'm in charge of the room. So it would be stuff that was expressing genuine vulnerabilities in a sincere fashion like i would write him like real like positive like right on like really sort of political social like sincere material like no cynicism at all very much like having to perform with absolute sincerity and i think the hardest thing for him would be trying to pull off sincere because everybody like expects that he's being mean at all times. So that that would be it for me. That would be my starting position, right? Or the or the other thing is just incredibly hacky jokes that like he would he perhaps he would have done when he was so like lots of stuff about having like red hair or like being bald. You know, like all the gear would be about like, you know, uh, you know, uh so uh, you know, the big opening line something like I used you know, obviously I've got red hair but I'm going bald, so you know, that's a that's a victory. <laughs> a lot of that sort of stuff. Only getting beaten up half as many times, guys. <laughs> See, I, the problem is, I think that, that would do too well if he was doing it. I think that would kind of crush if I saw Tom Gleason doing that material. I would absolutely love it. <laughs> um what what is it because i remember when i first started out um uh the first ever support season that i did at the melbourne comedy festival was for a canadian musical act called corky and the juice pigs are you familiar with corky and the juice pigs so people who don't know them um might know their song the only gay eskimo that was kind of their big crossover hit but they're very funny if you like i've spent like i've done the youtube you know rabbit hole on corking the juice pigs many times in my life and there's so much funny stuff there and anyway so i did a support season for them at the prince pat hotel um and every night so this is 20 nights of the festival every night they would set me a challenge before the gig of something that I had to do in my set. And then the three of them would sit at the back of the room and watch my set to make sure like I had done whatever it is, right? And the two the two ones I found most difficult were uh, in your set, you have to fall over 10 times, but never mention to anybody that you're falling over. 
that, that so that was like quite difficult. Like after a while, people do really start to go, "What is going on here?" And the other thing is, at the time, I was doing a lot of like political, you know, material. And uh, one night they got me to say the expression, uh, "I like tits, but I'm really a pussy man." 10 times, <laughs> just again, without being able to explain why. So I'd be doing this like really right on political material. And then just at the end go, you know, I like tits, but I'm really a pussy man. <laughs> <laughs> That's sick. Yeah, so imagine uh, three minutes just of that. <laughs> no material in between. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> um, what is the worst gig that you think you've ever done? Like, is there one that comes to mind when you think of, yeah, what's your equivalent of the, the Twin Towns, you know, gig that I talked to you about? I think early on, there's one, it's a, <laughs> Southbound in WA, because I grew up in Perth, which is now Falls Festival. It's their Falls Festival. So it's a three-day music festival. And somehow um, someone got a tent in the village area, you know, mm. not so where people come back to where all the food is. So someone got a tent there. And so we had three nights at this inside this tent. And what kind of became clear is that we were after everything had finished. So mm. all the bands stopped playing and they come back to the village and we're just going to do stand up here <laughs> to really drunk, really high people. Yeah. Um, and the first night they just wanted, they just wanted blood. <laughs> so they weren't, they were just yelled, they would yell. They were not like receptive <laughs> to any attempt at humor. And you just went up. And Slaud got killed and then came back down. <laughs> it was like a little, like a killing floor. We were, we were all little piggies. <laughs> we knew something bad. You could smell death in the air. And it was really scary because you were just like, huh, I'll try. And then I think I, my first attempt, I was, I tried to do material, but also tried to like riff with them and, that went horrible. And then the second, <laughs> it was just so bad. And I was supposed to MC the third, the third night. Yeah. So we took turns MCing. So I was MCing the last night. Yeah. And um, the second night, we we're like, okay, let's. We're gonna go out, and I'm gonna try, you know, giving it right back to them. And that was fun for a bit, but then they just shouted at me. <laughs> A lot. <laughs> they just shouted me down. <laughs> it was terrifying. But, and then, so the third one, I was like, okay, you know, and I'm like, I think I'm like 24, 23 at this time. I'm so fresh, so green. But, and like everyone in Perth at that time, we were so green at stand up, but we were just getting these gigs because there were no other comedians. Um, so, and then, so the, the last night I was like, okay, I brought a suit with me and I just went out and I, I just like 
we're all going to sit down and I made them swear that they wouldn't be cunts. <laughs> I made them do like all put their hands to their heart and solemnly swear to me that they would not be cunts. <laughs> so they all took an oath and halfway through like people came because it started in, during the festival. They were like, Oh, we're going to f- go to the music and then we're going to yell at these poor assholes. That's going to be right. so much fun. And it, that sounds like a, a really fun time to me. <laughs> But, and then the, they came in and everyone was like, oh, we've actually, we've done an oath. So he yeah, made sorry us swear. Guys. You weren't here for the oath, but there was an oath at the start. What was the oath? And everyone just went, uh, don't be cunts. <laughs> and it was really fun. And we actually managed to do some stand-up that night. Because it is amazing the idea that within the minds of the people who've gone to that festival, that in their head they were like, we are going to specifically go to this thing to ruin it. That's, that's going to be how we finish our night. Like enjoying art at a music festival is now we have to go and destroy some art. Like <laughs> we've enjoyed some, now we have to destroy some just to balance out the day. <laughs> it is. And the... Like saying it out loud, it does actually sound like a great, a great evening of fun. Music and then yelling at these stupid young cunts. Um, <laughs> so I just, uh, yeah. And there's, so there's that one. And then there's like a bunch of little ones. I've humiliated myself so much, Will. I've got nothing left. I once was in a uni taver- tavern at UWA, full uni tavern. And went up on stage and tripped over and fell. And you just can't... You just can't come back from that. <laughs> In front of a bunch of full UWA uni tavern. <laughs> yeah. There's just no returning. <laughs> It is one of those things falling over. Like everybody in the world has fallen over. And, and yet... Like nothing inspires less confidence in somebody's capacity to do anything than them falling over. Like despite the fact that we know that we've all done it and it it can be a thing. But if you were about to get on a plane and the pilot was up in front and like, you know, was getting on the plane and tripped over and fell, you'd be like, fuck this, I'll get the next plane. Like regardless of the fact that you're like, that probably – is fine. He probably just like, there's like on the walkway, there was probably some weird carpeting issue. He's probably, tr- nah, fuck this. I am not getting on this plane. That motherfucker fell over. <laughs> I'm, I'm catching the next one. I don't give yeah. a shit. Um, I, well, tell me this then, because this is something we rarely get asked as comedians, because obviously everybody is always fascinated by when it goes badly. But is there a moment that you remember where it just went, um, better than or like you know it just it can be your favorite i think moment on stage it doesn't have to be the biggest moment it doesn't have to be like the best gig you've ever done but what's your favorite moment that you've ever had being on stage or, or doing a performance it might not even be on stage i think the there was um i, I mean this year i opened for my friend uh, auntie donna at mm-hmm. uh, a full hamer hall and that was pretty magical yeah and they were like, uh, coming out to a lot, hot crowd. Lot, uh, yeah. So, okay. So this is interesting. So Auntie Donna, I'm assuming most people who like listen to this podcast are familiar with who Auntie Donna are. Um, but if you don't know, like a, like a 
a really brilliant, super popular through YouTube and then like a Netflix series and a whole bunch of stuff that they've done. It's actually a broader team, but there's three like front people to the broader team, you know, the people behind the scenes. Um, and they have a super huge following, just did a huge national tour of their like live, you know, sketch show. I guess that's what you call it, right? Like, is it a live sketch show? That's, that's as close, that's as close to, um, you know, it's super entertaining is what I will say. Like that's, it has the vibe of like a rock and roll show because I think often with Auntie Donna, the thing that works so well about their sketches over an entire show is you do feel like you're watching a musician and like this is this is like the really fast short song and then this is like a quite a, a longer more nuanced you know song and it does actually have that feel of an overall set but their fans the people who love auntie donna and love like had discovered them through youtube and their shows and stuff are very passionate about mm. auntie donna yeah so when you are opening for an act like that it can go definitely one of two ways. Like there could be really that sense of pretty sure you're not Auntie Donna, so you can fuck off right now. We're Auntie Donna. Or it can be like, oh, this is somebody that Auntie Donna have told us is like a good person. This is someone who's been involved in other stuff that they have done in the broader Auntie Donna world. So yeah. we had, embrace them in the same way. I had the that the the people the what the fuck who the fuck is this guy when I opened for Martin Short. <laughs> Right, ages okay, ago, yeah. in, <laughs> and people were like, "Who the? So like, was this guy? Was this guy one of the amigos? I don't yeah, think he was one guy, of the amigos. This isn't fucking Martin Short." <laughs> 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 and then, um, but for this one, I think it helped because I'm I'm in the Netflix series and I'm in the yes. their sketches quite a lot. I've known them for ages, and so. Every now and then they'll be like, hey, come on, come in here, you fucking idiot. And um, so I think that helped. Yeah. But it was the first one. It was the first leg of their tour. And so I think the the vibe was high. Yeah. But also, like, it feels like to me in that scenario, to use the Auntie Donna extended universe, that's what we've got here, right? Like, you're, you're part of the AD. EU, right? Like, you know, you're one of the minor characters where, where they've gone, oh, yeah, you're like the Ant-Man or whatever of the franchise. But then suddenly it's like, hey, guys, Ant-Man's here. Ant-Man's going to open this shit up. And people are like, unreal. This is amazing. Yeah. So, it, yeah, it was pretty It was pretty cool. Um, yeah. The other one that comes to mind, which it wasn't like a, it was at the comedy store in Sydney, which is like the best fucking room in the whole yes. country. Absolutely. Without hyperbole, I mean, I yeah. The best, the, the best room in the worst location, which is <laughs> they literally it's in the in the in middle of the entertainment quarter, uh, which is not entertaining uh, in any way. It is a real like black spot in the middle of Sydney, next to hu two huge sporting ovals. But I love that room. They just moved to that location when I first moved to Sydney. I used to like play there weekly hosting like then open my nights and whatever that I could do down there. I've done so many shows in that room. Haven't been there for a couple of years. Um, am hoping in the next month or two to actually get back there to, to do some shows at the store. But the thing that I always like to bring up, Ben, every time we mention the Sydney Comedy Score and why I love it so much, on the way in there's a poster on the wall um, of like, you know, the comedians who have played the Sydney Comedy Store. And so like – uh, it's our version of the, you know, the names written on the wall outside the the comedy store in uh, LA. 
And on that poster, because of the time period it was printed and the relative successes of each of our careers since then, I am my name is in front of Kevin Hart's name. Now, look, if they were doing the poster again today, Ben, I am the first yeah. to admit that that would probably not be the case. But they haven't changed over that poster. And every time I walk in there, I'm like, yeah, that's right. Number two, Kevin Hart. You bloody get used to that around the Sydney Comedy Store. The Sydney Comedy Store. That's a good, that's a good victory, I would uh, say. So tell me about this Sydney Comedy Store gig then. So I was... Uh... I think I was second in the se- second in the second or no second in the la- in the first sorry, and uh, third act was running really late like hadn't gotten there, and so they just said just fill, and just go longer and I was like what a treat a it was a red hot crowd and and b I was just just like good you know when you just have great interactions with the crowd doing a little bit of crowd work and it, it's working really well and everyone's positive and it was just such a yeah it was sick i felt like i'm yeah. you feel like a just you can the funniest person ever and it's yeah. a real everything was working and it was just yeah it was magical <laughs> It's a good yeah. When when it's full of people and the right crowd are in there, yeah, it's as good a room as there is anywhere in the world. It's like just so much fun to play. Yeah, that feeling of doing a. I know we're talking about bad gigs, but the good gig feeling is is uh, the best. The okay, best so drug. what? Yeah, so so what is the good gig feeling? Because this is interesting to me. Because uh, back before the pandemic, the pandemic, um, uh, I was having some real issues, crises around how stand-up was making me feel Mm -hmm. in that it wasn't really making me feel anything. And, you know, that thrill, all I would get was I would know when it hadn't done well. So I was still still having all the downside of it, the torment over trying to get it right. But when I got it right, all I would feel was at best the sense of accomplishment that I got it right rather than any of the joy of, you know, the connection with the audience and, you know, those sort of things that I used to experience when it was going well. And um, it was funny because like then the pandemic happened and the it all went away. And, and for me, like, oh, man, like coming back into it now, it – it feels like starting again in the sense of I am absolutely getting that joy. In fact, like even on my worst nights, I'm just getting the joy of being back doing it, being back like in front of people, being back, you know, surfing the waves of that ocean. And like my my th- theory about this, because I thought about it a lot, you know, when the audiences went away. And the thing that I really came to was that the thing I love about comedy, my comedy anyway, is that like the show doesn't exist without the audience. Like, I mean, it does. It's written on my computer. I could read it to you. This is the show. These are the words I'm going to be saying tomorrow night in front of those people. But to me, the show is the show is what I use to play the audience. Like, the audience is my instrument, right? I love playing an audience. And the jokes are the method that I use to play an audience. That is actually what I love about stand-up is... And it's why sometimes, like, I will laugh on stage and people are like, oh, you laughed at your own joke. And I'm like, I'm never laughing at my own joke. I've heard that joke a million times. I'm laughing 
at your reaction to that joke. I'm laughing at what I just made you do. Like good, bad or indifferent, whatever just happened then, like I was amused that I was able to make you do that. Like, or surprised or whatever it is. But I love audiences. That's what I, I think I was concentrating too much on getting the material right or the jokes right and forgetting that the jokes were only a thing that I needed to play the audience. The audience was really what I needed. So that was what it was for me. But tell tell me what you're feeling when it's going well is. Well, I had a very similar sort of, I'd felt like I kind of just wasn't enjoying stand-up pre-COVID. I kind of was afraid of writing new material and just, I don't know, uh, some of the joy had been taken out of it. And then I, yeah. But when it's going well, um, I don't know. I like to laugh at myself as well. And people think that it's me laughing at my own joke and the same thing. I laugh at the the audience and I laugh at the situation because I love, I sort of go outside my body and see pe- me saying this just yeah. ridiculous thing. Like talking about two rats sucking each other <laughs> off or something and people are laughing at it. And I find that whole thing quite funny. Yeah. <laughs> I find it funny that there's a, a man, a little stocky little tiny little man with a microphone in front of a bunch of people and they're all laughing sort of at him and with him. I think it's uh, I think it's enjoyable. Um, but yeah, it's that, it's that taking time and just, I love having fun. And when things come to you on the stage and you're, you're interacting and feeling the crowd and it's just, I don't know, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of, yeah, I, I find it, I've struggled to really describe the feeling of what it's like. Uh, but yeah, it's the, that man, I had a great gig last night with, uh, Greg Larson and Zoe Coombs Mar, mm-hmm. and it was a great vibe in the, in the, in the crowd. And it was just uh, yeah, it's just a lovely feeling. I think it's warm. It's what I imagine, uh, you know, some real heavy class A drugs might feel like that I have yeah. not done. Right. That's okay. You, you, yeah. You do. I mean, look at this. That's spoken like the guy who's like hosting a pilot on Channel Ten. <laughs> I don't know where I was. I've got. A, I've got. A, I've been on. A, I'm trying to. I'm trying to put my best foot forward. Will it feels like what I imagine heroin would, would be? <laughs> I mean, I guess that you know you want more and more of it, and it eventually has very diminishing returns and ruins the rest of your life. Yeah. And yeah, I guess it is exactly like what heroin is like. <laughs> if you haven't done it for a while, you're just like oh, I mean, it's just drug addicts yeah. to chasing that dopamine. Is that it? I mean, there is a part of that, I think, that is absolutely true. Like, I, I in the old days, I used to, you know, say to people that, you know, the movie Rounders, do you, do you remember that movie? The Matt Damon movie, Rounders? With uh, John Malkovich? Doing a very convincing Russian very accent, Very convincing Russian accent. <laughs> Boys, give him his money. <laughs> give him his money. His name was something amazing too, yeah. Teddy, Teddy something. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to look that up now. What his name was because it was something t- Teddy Rounders. Let's see if that um, gives me what I need and see if it was Rounders. Teddy KGB. <laughs> Teddy K- I'm Teddy KGB. 
<laughs> it was so weird. He was really overdoing it. <laughs> you have no power here. You cannot. Can, no one is coming to save you. I think there was. He also had some like there was some comic affectation about it, like a cookie or something. Well, didn't he have like a tell that was like a like snapping a cookie His or something? Oreos, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> My cookies. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, the great movie rounders uh, that I highly recommend. But it's funny, funny enough, I always call it one of my favorite stand-up movies because I really feel like that movie is actually about stand-up comedy because it is – that's what comics do. They just essentially go from town to town and find a game. And the more that you – like particularly the more that you do it overseas or you travel internationally with comedy, you realize – it's just a whole bunch of, like, you just run into the same people. Like, like eventually you sit across the, that, like, t- that card table from somebody that you haven't sat across that table for, like, four years or five years and you're vaguely competing against each other. But, real, but realistically, you're all just part of this, like, secret community that operates outside regular <laughs> society, right? <laughs> you're just looking for a game. What, yeah. What's on in town tonight? Like, where can I get on? Where I'm going to have to rewatch play? that film. Yeah. It's been too long. <laughs> I do love a John Malkovich in anything. I mean, that is, uh, like, it is my great me- other memory of that film is that accent. Like every time he's on screen. And I, am I wrong in saying this? Because Connie is exactly this, like not exactly the same accent, but I mean exactly the same performance. Like aren't these movies better for like, I know that we mock these sometimes these choices, like, like that an actor like Malkovich might make in those scenarios. You're like, it's so over the top, but that movie is so much better for that character being just oh, completely yeah. over the top, right? Yeah, and no, there's no. The movie doesn't tell you that it's going to be a completely real movie. I don't go into movies right. thinking it's going to be realistic. <laughs> um, and I love the, I especially love his arch. Yeah. The the archness of his villains yeah. that he makes them. He's got this old school um, Chicago theater style about him. He's like, hello, what you're doing is illegal and I will see you in court. Good sir. Welcome to Con Air. <laughs> it's me. It's Cy- Cyrus the Virus. <laughs> If you touch uh, a hair on her head. Yeah, he's so like, oh, he's so good. It's fun. Like it's, and I guess that's what, I mean, in a big weird way of linking this all together. Like when you're talking about rats sucking each other off, that's the com- that's the comedy equivalent of like getting a room full of people laughing at like rats sucking each other off. Part of the thing is, I can't believe he's doing this. <laughs> <laughs> Like, this is amazing. And also, I can't quite believe, like, I came to this thing not realizing that I was going to see rats sucking each other off. And now I didn't know that I wanted it, but now I need it. Yeah. And I'm going through a real, uh, you know, rat uh, sucking, a suck off. I call this my suck off period in stand up. A lot of suck offs in there. I don't know what it is. Well, I mean, every artist has a blue period. (laughs) So this is really. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, what is funny about, is it the term sucking off that you particularly like? It's not oral sex in of itself. It's like 
the term sucking off. Yeah, it's sucking off. Yeah. I find it so juvenile. Funny. Juvenile. Yeah. Could you please <laughs> suck me off? <laughs> it's so fucked up. <laughs> a suck off. Oh, yeah, you can do a big suck off or tell them yeah. people instead of yeah, yeah. just just tell them to suck off. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll suck off. Um, yeah, it's just a thing that I'm going, just a phase. <laughs> it reminds me of, uh, I don't know, in high school you used to, you'd be like titting off. Do you ever tit oh, yeah. off? Tit someone off. Yeah. Now what is, so, but to, to tit someone off, my understanding is, is that just the like play with someone's nipples? Is that essentially what you know, titting someone off is? I don't think anyone knows. Right. I don't think we ever asked that question. Because no one ever really did it, right? It's not really a thing. We were too busy asking uh, if we could. (laughs) We forgot if we should. (laughs) Imagine, because it seemed, uh, and I get why as a young person, of course it's, um, of course it's part of the vernacular because the bases like unfold in that sort of way where like you might like make out with somebody, then you might like touch their boobs and like, that's how, but as an adult, like how would you feel if like somebody said to you, excuse me, like, I love you. (laughs) Could you please Ben tip me off? Would you be fine with that? Would you? I would be impressed. (laughs) I think, I think if someone asked, Ask me to tip them off. I would laugh, right. and I'd be like, yeah. "Hey, uh, you're all right. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is my kink. I hope it's not too weird for you, but I love being titted off. Could you please tip me off? Excuse me, sir. Can you tip yeah. me off? <laughs> For, firstly, would you immediately know what they meant by titting them off? Like, or would you say to them, just before we jump in, what 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 do you mean when you say tip me off? Um, or, no, would you, or would that, that spoil, spoil the mood? Or would you like? I would be on the level. I would know. Yeah. I would know. I would be familiar. If you said, you know, if someone came up to me out of the blue, I wasn't even thinking about titting yeah. off or doing anything regarding what tits weren't even on my mem- mind yeah. um, and said tit off, I would be like, yeah. I know what you're, I'm picking up what you're putting down. Yeah. And I'm titting <laughs> it off. <laughs> what, what, what if you got back to their place and it was revealed that they literally wanted you to help remove their breasts. Then I would, I would sit them down and I'd be like, that's great. And I want to support yeah. you through this. Mm-hmm. Good. Um, what can we do that, to make it safe? Let's right. just make safe. Good. See, good. Correct answer. Yeah, that was, that, that was a bit of a quiz. Like yeah. that was a test you're to be to, honest. You're, and trying to, you're trying to fucking <laughs> slip me up. Okay. I thought it was good. That was well handled. <laughs> yeah. You were very yeah, immediately understood like the way to go on that one. That very <laughs> empathetic. I've got a lot of, getting a lot of emotional intelligence from you Thank based you so on that much. answer. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. good. You know, I'm an empath. <laughs> uh, it is, um, the self-identifying empath is. <laughs> is a phrase, I never thought that I'd hear this. Self-identifying. Yeah, okay. Well, because here's the thing. Like I get, I I mean, I think empathy is a a great thing. And in fact, I was reading an article the other day where the premise of their article was that the problem with Joe Rogan is that Joe Rogan is actually just too empathetic, that he's very naturally empathetic. If he has a guest on, like he tends to like empathize to whatever that they are saying, like, you know, rather than, you know, be in a mood to necessarily 
like challenge it or refute it or like bring different information to the table that, you know, it doesn't mean that he's at all times empathetic to everybody he's talking about because often there can be people that are being talked about that are not getting empathy at all, but that he has empathy very much for the person who's in front of him. So whoever that is, he's like, you know, very in the way that he interviews, he tends to mostly agree and support the opinions regardless of how terrible the opinions might be. It was an interesting take. I like the, but I think about empathy a lot because I think it's a very important human condition to have. And yet those who make it their entire personality, I'm interested in because I've met a few self-identifying empaths and often they feel like the people who are actually the least empathetic people that I know. And I wonder if that's, is, is that a thing or yeah. is that just my personal experience? No, I think it's a, a, when I, if I hear people genuinely saying that, I'm like, uh, uh methinks the lady doth mm. protest mm. too yeah. much. I think you, you are misspelling, misspelling narcissist, narcissist. <laughs> is yeah. what I'm yes. hearing. <laughs> that's usually it. Um, <laughs> I've known, I, you know, I went through a hippie phase I right. went through a burning a burner phase as mm-hmm. well, you know, very bohemian lifestyle, you know, in Frio and and I was in a puppet theater company, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I went to Chicago and, and met up, you know, fell in with some some burners, which are people that go to Burning Man and never mm-hmm. spiritually leave, mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot of empath empaths in that in those circles. And they're usually the most selfish people yeah. I've ever met, generally <laughs> speaking. <laughs> Did you go to Burning Man yourself? I've never been to Burning Man. I wish that I had. It feels yeah, too would late you, now. Would, yeah, me too. So, same. I, I, there was a few opportunities over the years that I had to go back when it still would have been a fun thing to go to. Mm. But now it feels like, yeah, that I missed... I miss that boat. I feel like going now would be like, I mean, when you're going to something four or five years after Carl Sandilands has been to it, I feel, I feel like, like that's, that's too yeah. late to get on board, you know? Yeah, I reckon. I reckon that's a good rule. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, and I'm, I'm upset because I would have loved to have gone in the first, you know, few years of it going. It sounds like it was genuine, genuinely amazing and a special time and that uh, that fit right in to my vibe at at that time as yeah well. so what what, what was, was your vibe, vibe at that time like, like i mean like, like what does what that, that mean? mean so i mean for, I those, lived, for those, those who don't, don't get what that culture is and what that world is and what that point of view is what, what how would you explain it's um it's sort of a i mean it's hippies basically but the hippies mm. that love drugs i mean yes but like mm. love dance music as well um and and love DMT. <laughs> that's their that's their personality as well. They love DMT. And um, yeah. well, one, one of the side, side effects of DMT, and I can say this as somebody who's taken DMT, is that for about six months afterwards, every single conversation you eventually end up talking about DMT. It is actually the reason that I stopped taking DMT was I just did not want to be one of those people who talked about DMT. One hundred percent. I completely, so there's a lot of that people yeah. telling you to, it's, it's a lot of, uh, white people telling you about the last time that they were high when they yeah. were getting, when they're getting high. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> they're just describing when we were high. Man, we were so hard this time. We were tripping while they are getting high and tripping. Uh, yeah. And, you know, yeah. The, yeah. it's just a barter yeah. lifestyle. You know, you kind of, it's communal. Mm. Um, it's emotional and, you know, we don't own things, but I'll take all... I'll take your eggs. So what about um, from the fridge? From the yeah. fridge. What would your value in that community be? So something I always think about like in a post-apocalyptic sense is like, you know, if, if shit went to Fury Road, like what's, what's my job on Fury Road? Like who, who am I in this like alternative society? What do I have to offer? So what, what, what do you have to offer? What would you be bartering in exchange for whatever experiences you are having? Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Uh, being, a, you know, being in entertainment and stand up, I guess I could do, uh, I could just help around, uh, help around the place. <laughs> I can make some bread. I can lift. You, you, uh, I might be small, but oh, I've got yeah? a very low oh, yeah. center of gravity, so I, I, I've got strong legs. Do you? Well, yeah, you, yeah, like Power, powerful legs. Powerful little legs. Really? And I can use them to churn butter and plow fields. Really? Yeah. Do you think you could though? Really? Yeah, like totally. If, I yeah yeah I could. Uh, my dad's got a like a fa- little hobby farm north of yeah. Earth, and I help out there when I when I'm over there and. I used to be a removalist. Uh, okay. okay. All right. Okay. okay. So, so yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. You've, You've got, got some, some sense, sense of being able to move things around. around. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's it. Uh, okay. That's all that's I can a, offer. I can. Well, that's, that's that's something. Like, I mean, I got to be honest with you. That's something. Now, the butter churning immediately came to mind. And is that something that you've done on this this supposed hobby farm that your your father has? I've never churned butter. No. But so you just assume you can. You? I assume there is an assumption that I can churn butter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, would you Would you, would you know, know what to do? do? Like if without, without any, like, say the internet goes down tomorrow, mm-hmm. the World Wide Web, the information superhighway, they close the superhighway. There's been a landslide, mm-hmm. and there is no superhighway anymore. Oh, what a better world. Yeah. Okay. But they they like a Ben. You, the last thing we listened to was the Fofop podcast and you said that you could churn butter. If no one there knew how to churn butter from, from scratch, do you know, do you think you would be able to know how to make butter? Yeah. Like, do I mean, you know you just, how to? It's just cream, yeah. right? Is it? Yeah. So you just get, you milk a cow, uh-huh. you get it all creamy, you take off that top layer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Then you ch- you pop that in a pot and you just churn it up. You're gonna churn that up, and the more that you, because of the 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 cream, uh-huh. the more you move it, the more it sticks to its own itself, uh-huh. and that will make eventual butter. You got to churn it really? a lot. It's tiring work. So it, you don't have to add anything else to to like. I mean, because like it's surely if you just like churn like cream for a while, it becomes whipped cream. So you're telling me that butter is just I mean, I'm not a scientist. Butter is whipped cream that has been churned even more. Is that what you're without telling me? Ever making, uh, yeah. Without ever making butter. No, you're in charge now. You're the butter guy. All right, you're... well, then I think you add a little bit of salt and you, okay. you you just whip it up and then it'll go from cream. Yeah, so you'll be like cream yeah. and then yeah. cream turns into that whipped cream will be like get even more, get buttery. Okay, and maybe add a little bit more cream or milk or whatever the fuck they do, and then all of a sudden, boom! It turns yellow, 
You put it in the fridge for ages. Uh-huh. Okay. All right, here we go. Let's yeah. uh, let's have a have a look on the internet and see how, how we how we. I think um, I've, I think I've done well. You know what? I actually think that you have done pretty well. Like apparently, butter is just whipped cream that people have whipped for longer. So this is interesting to me. Like so. All right. Now, yes. Yeah, so whipping cream, salt to taste. That's it. That's it. And you, but you got to you got to churn. We're talking a long churn, longer than what you want to do. But I've got to be honest with you. Like, and this is I grew up on a dairy farm, Ben. So this probably shouldn't be the first time that I've worked this out. But that is that is a twist. Can I just say, <laughs> out of all this, <laughs> I didn't know that I could have been. It's funny. My parents recently have. Um, so my brother is back, uh, you know, working the farm with my father. And my father is, um, yeah, getting, I mean, 79 now. So, like, getting to the point where, you know, you don't want to drop dead farming. So he's one of those guys who will probably always want to do a little bit. But basically what they've been doing is over the last few years going through the process of transferring the farm over from it being something that my brother helps my parents run to it being my brother's farm that like that my parents just help him run a little bit. And that's the process that's been going on. But of course, in that moment, there's three of us kids. And so technically, like, you know, in like the inheritance world, right? Like there's a third of it each is kind of, you know, the way that it would go. Now, I've said to my parents a million times, like, because they always, they're planners, right? So they, they always want to have these conversations with us now so they don't become problems you know, later on. And when it's like a farm, a piece of land, that sort of thing, it's not like just dividing up some some money or whatever. I always say to my parents, hey, it's your money. Honestly, if you literally want to Charlie Sheen it for the last two years of your life and spend all my part of it, do it. It's it's your life, right? But if this is what you want, um, you know, they basically would like to keep the farm together. So their eventual plan is that, you know, our, my, my brother might pay my sister and me, like, you know, rent on our parts of the land or whatever whatever agreement it would be, but keep keep the farm the farm. So my brother has started sending me pictures of my piece of land now with suggestions of what we can grow on my piece of land. Uh, mostly weed, to be honest, is what he's suggesting that I would like to grow on my piece of land. And I, I'm quite keen on the idea that I could have like a little, you know, regional weed farm. Mm. But now that I know that it's as easy to make butter as just whipping some cream for long enough, yeah. I'm going to keep a couple of cows as well. Because, I mean, weed butter. I could literally, like on the same farm... I could be making artisanal Will Anderson oh my God. Wee, wee butter. Like that's that would be more successful than anything that I've done in my entertainment career. I think that could be a literal <laughs> gold mine. Uh, <laughs> Will Anderson's artisanal weed butter. <laughs> we whip whip cream for way too long. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly did not know. I did not know if you just kept whipping cream, it eventually becomes. Why don't we talk <laughs> about this more? <laughs> Your family is on a dairy farm, Will. <laughs>
That's why my brother's in charge and not me, man. I think we found out, yeah. Fair to say, the day I told my parents I wasn't taking over the farm, the look on their face was not disappointment. (laughs) (laughs) Just relief. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God we didn't have to initiate this conversation. (laughs) Yeah. He doesn't even know how you make butter. So... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's weird that they even have, I guess, in a way, like milk. So you're telling me that milk (laughs) can be milk, (laughs) it can be cream, it can be sour cream, it can be like whipped cream, and it can be butter. Yeah, and it can be yogurt, and it can be cheese. Okay, so... All right. Surely I've got to do something different to it for it to be cheese, though. I've got to add. What have I got to add for cheese? You got the you got the churn. So yeah. the things. Let me tell you. Yeah. So Please with tell me. with butter, you were yeah. churning and whip and whipped cream. We're, yeah, we're whipping it whipping. up. We're creaming yeah. it up. Yeah. Okay, so that's the that's the cream and whipping part. Yeah, and then you on the other side. Uh-huh. Okay, you've got the just <laughs> put it in a bucket. And put it in the fridge for ages. And that is the yogurt and cheese part. You just got to leave it alone. Okay, but surely I've got to add other shit for it to be cheese. You can't be telling me that I can just take cream and milk and leave it in the fridge and eventually it becomes cheese. No, that can't be true. I reckon you can. I'm going to have to Google how do you make cheese. (laughs) (laughs) I reckon you totally can. Why aren't we talking about this more? Is what I'm saying. I mean, there might be people Let's listening to this going, "Why are you talking about it so much?" But get the dialogue started. Let's open up a dialogue. All right. How do you make cheese? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Here we go. How is cheese made? How can I make cheese at home? That's what I want. Right. Start with fresh, warm milk. Acidify the milk. Now, what what does that mean, though? I don't even know. Add lemon no. to it. Okay. Add a coagulant. So you've got oh, to add a coagulant. Yeah, we've got a coagulant. What do you think a coagulant yeah. is? Wheat? Like flour? <laughs> I don't know. Hang on. Let's uh, instru- instructables. That, that's not enough information. I need more information. Here we go. This, is <laughs> this should come. This podcast okay. should be uh, have a trigger warning for people that live in the country. Yeah, or, <laughs> or for people who are lactose intolerant, yeah. I guess. Like, But here it is. Um, all right. Fresh warm milk. Okay. The nicer and fresher the milk you use, the more delicious your cheese will be. Okay. I like this editorial that I'm getting here. Yeah. So fresh from, we're talking good. fresh from the teat. Well, well that's fine. I squeezed it right bloody, in the bucket. We've got bloody heaps of cows. Yeah. And I'm gonna I'm gonna quarter myself off a third of those cows to make this this weed cheese that yeah. I'm now in the business of. Weed cheese. Um, all right. Acidify the milk. Here we go. Uh, there are many ways to make cheese, but the first split in the road is how you acidify the milk. Oh, okay, well, here we go. One way is to dump acid, vinegar or citric acid, right into the milk. Okay. Um, uh, which leads to cheeses like ricotta and mascarpone. Mm. The other way to acidify the milk is to add cultures or living bacteria. Given time, warmth and lack of competitor bacteria, these cultures will eat up the lactose in the milk turning it into lactic acid. Okay, rennet. So you've got to like, put something called rennet. Mm. Um, all right, okay. Which comes from an animal stomach. Okay, well, there's animals on the farm, I suppose. We can get some rennet. You know, wine, they mm. use like fish guts. 
Really? To make the to in the filtering process because you throw a bunch of the fish guts in and that collects yeah. all the ba- all the little residues from the wine right. and then they get all the fish guts out. Like, <laughs> and so you've got fish guts in your wine. I mean, wow. I'm learning a lot today, Ben. I gotta be honest. With you. Me too. I don't know if I'm making this shit up or, or Reddit. Uh, honestly, don't. Or it was a, a dream. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm having a conversation with a young Dr. Carl. In fact, that's a show that I'm pitching with you as the lead for the ABC. <laughs> young Carl. Young Carl. It's he like what really know what he's talking about. <laughs> no. He hasn't done his training here. He's just very interested in the world. Oh, yeah, yeah um, it's, it's simple. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, because it could be it could be a cheese or uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, there you go. Yeah. So, so just, I could I could technically be just making butter here all day long if I wanted to be. You could do anything you wanted to, will I believe that? I believe you put your mind to something, you can do it. How many... Do you think one cow would be lonely by itself? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Right. They're, they're social animals. Mm. My dad's got some cows too. Mm. And they're very nice. And they love him. And whenever I go and see them, I feel bad for mm. eating their kind. Well, I, well, don't. I don't. Yeah? But, do you, but do you, how, how do you reckon, reckon they'd, they'd be, be if I got like a couple of cows so they weren't lonely? Maybe it's free, just to... Like, because two feels a bit like, what if they don't like each other? Essentially, they're just now stuck with somebody that they hate. I think three or Although four Although with cows. three, yeah, four, yeah, four maybe. Four cows. So that, yeah. yeah. Let's, let's hope it's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's enough. enough. Yeah. That's, that's enough to mix it up a little bit, right? Yeah, exactly. I think that that's okay. great. So if I have four cows and I milk those cows daily, twice daily, like, and... Like, would I be getting enough milk? How much? Again, I grew up on a dairy farm, but I'm asking you these questions. Do you I believe that's that? A fuckload of milk. Is that enough milk for me to be making my butter? Yeah, surely. Yeah. For one person, how much butter do you want to make? I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, if I'm going to go to the effort of making it, yeah. I'm probably, probably like, like, I want to make like a bucket of butter a day. Could I make a bucket of butter a day? I reckon you probably could. No. Yeah. And do you reckon people would buy my butter? <laughs> yeah. If I, if, I, if I started selling my own butter, do you think people would? Oh, dude, I would buy your butter every day. I'd <laughs> walk to the market and I'd say hello to all my friends and I'd toss a gold coin over to the over the market salesman. I'd say, the usual, please. And he'd be like, a bit of Will's butter. I'd say, thank you. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it, it, it was too. I was too close to it, Ben. That was the problem. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I was too close to. Yeah. And I, I didn't want it, so I was like openly rejecting information that was being offered to me every day about the fact that I could have been as a teenager. I could have had a butter empire. What were you more? What were you more concerned about? Anything, anything but the family farm. Like literally anything but the family farm. I looked at that way of life and went, "This is not for me." Like I, yeah. And I think honestly, I, I, I lied a lot about this when I was younger because it's one of those things that you can't really say out loud. But I reckon when I was like thirteen or fourteen, and I first watched like comedy on TV. Like the ABC, I was watching like Andrew Denton, a big gig and stuff like that. Um, 
I literally in my head was like, I reckon I could do that. I reckon that's what I'll do with my life, which you can't, you then have to tell other people heaps of other things. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because like, that's what a ridiculous thing for a kid from a dairy farm in country Victoria to say like, yeah, I, I, but like not even that's what I'd love to do. There was honestly a little bit of me at like 13 or 14. They just looked at that and went, yeah, I reckon that's what I'll, I'll do with my life. Which is like now that I have done with that with my life, just seems like absolutely bananas that some kid thought that that was at, was possible in any way, and also that it has kind of happened, I suppose. But, yeah, and know. just to be able to be like at that age, just go, "Yep, that's it." Mm. But I didn't even know what that was. Like, yeah. <laughs> like whatever it is, I'm on I had, board. I had butter staring me in the face every day. I could have had a butter empire. You could, I could have, have had have a butter empire. I mean, I, I, you know, what the problem is with butter though. Like, I, I love butter. I got into comedy because I loved comedy and I wanted to hang out with comedians. But like, I love butter recreationally. You know what I mean? Like socially. Like, I don't want to take away <laughs> recreational butter. I want a little butter. <laughs> this is my walking around butter, you know? <laughs> I, sometimes when I go to a restaurant and they offer, like, bread but with oil, I I will actually say, also, do, do you have butter? Could you please bring me some butter, some recreational butter? <laughs> yeah. Just a bit of butter to play with. Just, come on. <laughs> <laughs> you got to have butter back there. Even if you don't normally serve butter with this bread, I know there's fucking butter in that kitchen. I can sense it. You go back there, you slice me off some of that cooking butter and you bring it back here on a plate. <laughs> Just be warned. Just be warned. Yeah. You know what? Will Anderson's really, he's really crazy about that butter. Uh, yeah, please give me some butter. Oh, you know what? If you don't have butter back there, have you got whipped cream? Because if you've got whipped cream, you get that out of here and I will start churning because <laughs> I need some butter right now. And I now know how to make butter. You know how to make butter. Finally, after so many years, we figured it out. Well, this is me. Okay, but this is me now. I'm locked in. This is my burn. Like, if I, if I ever go to Burning Man, I'm going with a cow. I'm going with a cow and a butter churner and I'm going to churn butter all weekend. Let Just let people, like, and use it for whatever they want. Like the burnt, you know, like I don't care what you use your butter for once you've it's bought my of, butter. Yeah, it's none of my none business. Of my business. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, funny. Um, do you have a, um, like a food type that is, so for me it is butter. The, the one thing that I know that I could never give up is butter. Yeah. Like it's just my favorite of all. Like, do you have, like, a, a food like that? The one that you can never take out of the roster? I mean, I do love butter. Mm. I think, you know, yeah, we like, we joke and we have a good time. But at we the end of the time. day, yeah. Let's at the end of the day, remember, guys. <laughs> I do love it's butter. butter. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I feel like I, I feel like the two of us have to, like, maybe we both said we want to go to Burning Man and we both said it's too late. But what if... We pledge to go together, you, me, two cows, and we make some butter for the good people of Burning Man. You know what oh I mean? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. All right. Let, yeah. yeah. I'm... <laughs> yes. Let's do it. Fuck it. <laughs> Fuck it. Let's do it. Okay. We've got to think about, like, what the cow's going to eat. So we're going to get some feed or whatever. Oh, shit. It's the middle of the desert, isn't it? Yeah. I was relying. Get... Oh, yeah. Okay. We need to get enough water. Mm, yeah. Because you don't want to have a dead cow. 
I mean, that is well, a good point, actually. At the, well, for the final night, for the big fire. Yeah, a big barbecue. <laughs> big barbecue. A cow can, it's a big animal, you know. You could feed a large portion of people Burning Man with that. Uh, I know, but like these are dairy cows. These are not beef cows. These haven't been bred to be eaten. These are bred to make butter, you know what but I mean? They would still taste Ooh, good. Bread and they? butter. Yeah, probably. They'd probably taste fine, I suppose. Yeah. What, what happens if you eat a dairy cow? I don't really know. Again, who are you asking? A guy who grew up on a dairy farm for 17 years? Um, eating, <laughs> di- eating dairy cow. <laughs> Looking it up, Google it. Yeah. Computer. Yeah, Google it. Eating, eating dairy eating cow. dairy cow. Here we go. Let's see what the World Wide Web has to say. Most dairy cows, many people are surprised to find out, whether they're raised in organic, grass-fed or conventional systems, are sold when they're retired. Their meat is primarily turned into low-quality ground beef, the type you'd find in a, like, fast-food burger. Okay, but, yeah, but still edible. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, it, I mean, the cow, that's why the cow is so valuable, mm. you know, in the olden days. Right. That's why people would trade mm. with cows or they'd sacrifice a cow mm. at the beginning of a good harvest. Right. Because they're would valuable. They, would they eat the cow then, though, right? Like, when you say they'd sacrifice the cow, would you then eat the cow, or was the cow literally just a sacrifice to the gods in those situations? You know what? I, I'm not entirely sure, but I assume they just leave it for the god. Right. It would decompose, and that would be the god eating it. Right. Seems a bit of a waste, doesn't it? It does seem a bit of a waste. Like, surely... Yeah, I guess, though, it's not a sacrifice for God if you all then just eat it, is it? It's just... Yeah, but, I mean, we're talking back in the day when people thought, like, there was a dude in the ocean mm. and he was like, if he got angry. I mean, the gods were real real mean, weren't they? I like that about I like that about the Greek the Greek gods and the Thor. That they, the, they, they were mean, that they were vengeful gods. Yeah, they just kind of, they committed to it. You know, I'd rather, I'd rather an asshole that goes, yeah. hey, I'm an asshole, yeah. than someone goes, I've, yeah. I'm, hey, I'm cool. Yeah, you know what I am as a god? A real empath. I really understand you guys. <laughs> the Christian God is a real empath. <laughs> you know, I died to feel your pain. I'm really empathetic, you know. <laughs> totally. I mean, don't, yeah, you know, I'm nothing like my dad. Stop it. <laughs> God is a real empath. He's, he just yeah. feels people's emotions so much. It's the thing that people never talk about when it comes to Jesus, though, I think, is that, you know, he was born into it. Like, it's easy for him to become the saviour of all men, isn't it? When you're born into, like, a religious family like he is, that's a leg up in the industry. His dad's God. Of course he got a break. You know what I mean? Jesus really needs to check his privilege. That's what right. I say. Yeah. What about Peter or Judas? They don't really get their props because, you know what? Judas' old man wasn't in the biz. Not many, not many kids are called Judas these days. No. Hasn't no. caught on, has it? No. Wonder why? Um, it's it'd be interesting, wouldn't it, if you just decided to, like, Clearly or just Judas. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you're not religious, right? Yeah. Like, it's you... just a name. <laughs> it's just a name that no other kid at school is going to have. <laughs> you would think, right? This is my kid. This is Judas. This is Adolf. Yeah, these names were going cheap. No one has them. We just wanted. We didn't want another Jake or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> These are my sons, Judas, Adolf, and Idi Amen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is little Pol Pot. Little Pol Pot. Look at you, little Pol Pot. Names, it's just a name. 
Is there a female equivalent of that? Is there any name? Like there's been male names that are so now associated with terrible things that nobody like will use them anymore. But is there like a female equivalent of that? Oh, Who's um, the worst woman who's ever lived? <laughs> <laughs> You mean? Like we can like make a trap. A, no, but we can make a list yeah. off the top of our head worst of the worst men who've ever lived. Like you could name just if I say name the worst people, you, like you just go great. Like here's a mm-hmm. list of like ten like you know oh, names of the worst. The choice. Men. Yeah, yeah. But who's the worst woman who's ever lived? The worst woman. Yeah. Like oh. historically, the worst, worst woman has ever lived. I reckon one of the queens. I mean, you'd think it'd have to be like a leader of some kind. Yeah. Um, one of the queens see. have got to be bad. Okay, I'm going to go to... Queen um, of Spain? Was she bad? All right. There's like a bad... Oh, yeah, okay. So, Seven Most Evil Women in History is <laughs> the article God. that I've uh, clicked <laughs> on uh, from How Stuff Works. The top five um, most evil women in history. Okay, so uh, Mary the First of England. So, well done. Good, uh, good royals. That's good. Also known... What was Mary the First of England's uh, nick- nickname? No, I said think, think alcohol. Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. Killed a lot of Protestants when uh, uh, attempting to restore Catholicism to England. Okay. All right. So she's in uh, number seven. Um, But was she a good hang? You know what I mean? I mean, I reckon she was fun, right? Um, Eileen Warnos. Eileen Warnos? Eileen Warnos was a highway prostitute, they say, a sex worker, who is considered to be America's first female serial killer. Oh, good for her. Slant yeah, okay. queen. All right. Um, oh, okay. The movie Monster uh-huh. uh, that had Cameron, no, uh, so yes, Charlize yes. Theron. Mm-hmm. Charlize Theron. That was based on her. Oh, well done. Uh, Myra Hindley. Myra Hindley. She, she murdered uh, people along with her partner, Ian Brady. Um, they kidnapped, sexually tortured, and murdered five children and teenagers. So, wow. let me ask you this, Ben. Yeah, your your partner is also your wife. Your partner, wife. Well, you, you guys are married, aren't you? Yeah. So your wife is also in the biz. Mm-hmm. Like you're both. So you collaborate together on on shows. So very, you did a show together during the festivals. It was very successful. Um, what if? She came to you one day and said, I've got another project I'd like us to collaborate on. <laughs> killing, <laughs> Have you ever... <laughs> killing, killing kids. Killing kids. <laughs> like, I'm going to, regardless. But, you know, like couples who do things together, stay together. Would you also be up for it? What, what do you reckon your response would be in that situation? I would probably laugh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for a while. <laughs> laugh for a good time. Yeah. Um, and then I'd say... Maybe we just let's have a nap first. <laughs> Maybe you're just a bit tired. <laughs> uh, um. Number four, Carla Homolka. Carla Homolka is Canada's most notorious female serial killer. Mm. Sorry. <laughs> so. Uh, she actually murdered less people than the American one, but I think she's ranked higher because she's Canadian. Yeah. I think the fact that a Canadian became a serial killer uh, automatically puts you up the list. Yeah, for sure. Uh, uh, Rosemary, Rosemary West, West, of course. Uh, the, uh, uh, her husband, Fred West, Fred and Rosemary West, they uh, were the British couple who. Oh, uh, yes. Yes, killed a whole bunch of people. Uh, second place, Amelia Dyer. 
Amelia Dyer is one of the most prolific serial killers in history. She reportedly murdered about... Oh, my God. Oh, Jesus Christ. Uh, okay. <laughs> what are you reading? Yeah, this is a lot. So, um, look, yeah, I don't probably need to do trigger warnings for this podcast, but... <laughs> This is a lot. I mean, what, what is about to happen is a lot. Amelia Dyer is one of the most prolific serial killers in history. She reportedly murdered about 400 or more babies Whoa. over a 20-year period in the Victorian era. She would prey on young unmarried women with infants who would pay her to take care of their children, and then she would kill she the would children. She would kill the kids. Yeah. Well, it was called <clears throat> baby farming back in the day, like getting other people to take care of their children. Mm. It says here, unlike most baby farmers... Dyer would take the money from these women, but instead of taking care of their children, she would kill them and dump them in the Thames River. Whew. Wow. Boy. That is harsh. That's harsh yeah. even for English people. Yeah, and Victorian times. Even that four. I mean, but also, like, if you're, like, number 350 plus, like, how have you not heard that she's yeah. not a good babysitter? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, that is wild. It's wild. She's like... Oh, what was her? Ex- How did she get away with it for so long? You'd be like, "Where'd yeah. my baby go?" Oh, what it's baby? gone. It, it's gone. No, I think she's going to have to go with the like the literal like. I don't. What are you talking about? I, I didn't have your baby. I don't know. Oh, that is chilling. Yeah. Well, these are all murderers. You know, these are all evil murderer yeah. psychopaths. What about like you know, I'm like more blue collar or white collar criminals. <laughs> Like your Thatchers. Right. You know? Um, well, we'll go, in first place, apparently, was Elizabeth Bathory. Uh, the Guinness World Records considers Countess Elizabeth Bathory to be the most prolific female serial killer. She was accused of torturing, mutilating and killing around 650 women between 1585 and 1610. Bloody um, hell. Yeah. yeah. What, what, was so, 15, what were the 1500s looking like? Well, apparently she used to bathe in the victim's blood in an effort to retain her use. Whoa. So that was what the 1500s looked like. That's some, that's metal. (laughs) (laughs) That's some metal shit right there. (laughs) (laughs) But again, uh, like just another example of everyday sexism that, you know, some of those aren't everyday names, whereas the worst... Men in history, we all know them off the top of our heads. I don't think we'll ever be a fully equal society when, until we know as many evil women as we know evil men, right? And ben? that's what this <laughs> podcast is about. It's <laughs> celebrating evil women. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's why I want more. I want to see more female war criminals. I think that right? we don't have enough representation in the Hague <laughs> of women of women exactly no one's standing you know when was the last woman that stood trial at the Hague for, for genocide in, yeah you know okay. it, it, I'm gonna say as a woman ever genocide I reckon men. last Hague last female Hague would have been like World War Two era female Hague. <laughs> see, if, see if that comes up. Women at the Hague. Here women we go. At this the sounds Hague. fun. Women at the Hague. <laughs> it's uh, just the women at the Hague. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Women at the Hague is actually a conference they had at the Hague. That's not yeah. uh, what it, uh, I think I'm going to. No. 
okay, we're going to have trouble finding that. But um, <laughs> Exactly. And that's the problem, Will. That's the problem, right? That's a problem. <laughs> that's a fucking problem. Yeah. Like until the woman can do a proper full-on genocide and then be tried for war crimes at the Hague, then we will never – you know, if you, if you can't see it, you can't be it, Ben. And what about all those young women growing up who are like, well, I can't be a war criminal. I can't commit an international genocide because I've never – seen anyone who looks like me commit an international genocide listen if i want to i want to can i please speak to all the young women of your listenership i just want to say you can do it okay be the first you be the first be the trailblazer and um don't take no for an answer um especially when people are begging for their lives their lives yeah Yeah. um don't yeah just be the Rosa, Rosa Parks of genocide. This is your opportunity. You know what I mean? It takes, it takes what a sentence. <laughs> what an absolute sentence that one is. <laughs> uh, this has been fun, Ben. Thank you very much for teaching me how to... Uh, butter yeah churn butter make butter no worries anytime <laughs> something my father never did in the 17 years of me living on a dairy farm so well if you have any more dairy questions yeah. just let me know or just general life advice you're my father now okay <laughs> <laughs> sorry dad we've recast i've got a new dad we're going for someone a little bit younger younger <laughs> That's highly, that's fucking showbiz, man. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like the Wiggles. I'm recasting the family. Yeah, I'm, I'm staying, staying in. in. I'm the old one who's staying in, yeah, but I'm recasting right. around me. <laughs> yeah, great. So um, good. The show is called uh, I'm Dying Up Here. Time to Die. Kill me, please. Time to Die. It's a show about encouraging young women to commit genocide. <laughs> <laughs> it's about two comics two comics writing the worst stand-up they can for each other and it's going to be on 10 play it's going to be on 10 play during yeah so they perform that's yes that's the bit we did not get to and i just cut you off which is they write the stand-up for each other then you get to see them perform that stand-up in front of a crowd who does not know that they are performing bad stand-up on purpose exactly there's cameras there but i mean there's cameras that's not a, unusual to see at a comedy night someone you know could be filming their sets or whatever you know who who knows so they don't know that they're about to kind of get stitched up <laughs> by seeing some purposefully bad stand-up and yes room runners it's especially in the early days it was difficult to get them on board right <laughs> I, I was going to say, in a technical sense, would you then later explain wh- what had happened? Or, yeah, you'd be like... I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure how they did this. Uh, when Because it used to be a podcast. We started doing a podcast. And for the podcast, they did um, they did the, the... We did the thing. We did the deed. And then later, just, just to sort of clean the air... The MC would go. Yeah. This is actually a part of a, a pr- yeah. like a a stunt show, if you will. Yeah. Like it's a podcast, you can listen to it. So I don't know what they did this time. I I hope that they. I think you later, hope so. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things that you would just hope for the comedian's reputation <laughs> that somebody would say. By the way, they are not this bad. I mean, Tom Cashman bombs to a full com- comics lounge. 
Yeah, and you can feel them not liking it. <laughs> it is it is brutal, but I think that's well, I think that's why I like it because you can kind of sit back yeah. and watch someone else's that that they've you know willfully put themselves in this situation, and you can kind of be like, that is awful. Because a lot of the time, people it's like people's worst nightmare to get up, like public speaking. So it's kind of uh, see someone else do something incredibly scary on purpose. And uh, what I would say is, I've seen the the pilot episode when it is up on Ten Play. Go and have a look, and because basically the way that these things work, let's just cut to the like real mechanics of it. The more people who watch it on Ten Play, the more possibility is that channel 10 will then pick it up as a regular show for their schedule or to make more episodes and what i would absolutely say about this first episode is like the first episode of anything isn't perfect but you can see all the ingredients in this first episode like the show is there like you can sit down and go oh this is great i can imagine watching this show every week i can see where this show would develop i can see you know, the joy of having people like, you know, write material for each other and how that would develop as the show went on. Like, it really does feel like a great idea. And so I would encourage everybody who's listened to this to go and watch it, watch that first episode, watch it all the way through. Like, even if it's not for you or for your taste, because the more that people watch it the whole way through, the more chance is that, um, you know, you obviously get to make more of them. And I think it's absolutely one of those shows that you can just see from that pilot episode that, the more that you got to do it, the more the show would grow and grow and grow. Yeah, I think that's what's exciting about it is that, it, yeah, to grow the show and see how it evolves and settles in it. Because, you, you know, uh, it takes a while for a show to sort of get into it, into that rhythm. Um, and so that's exciting. But it's also exciting to sort of showcase in a kind of twisted way, new, you know, mid-range comedians and up-and-comers um, as well as comedy venues in Australia, you know? That's what I like. You get to go to see all the rooms. Like, we're going to Catfish and Comics Lounge, but, you know, we'll go all over the place in different venues because you don't want to stay in one venue, otherwise people will cotton on, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's right. You've got It's got to be a surprise for the night. Like, for it to actually work, there does have to be that. And I think that's why, in in a way... Like Tom's set in this pilot episode, because it's at the Comics Lounge, which is the most mainstream commercial, you know, probably comedy room in Australia, really. Like, you know, it's a room that they just fill up with like, you know, general, like public who want to see good straight ahead, you know, comedy by people that they've like probably heard of off the telly and that sort of stuff. So to then throw something that like that into the middle of that in particular because i mean like at say a catfish like you sometimes you will see somebody just bomb because they're trying something new anyway so the i but to see that roadblock in the middle of like a roaring night at the comics lounge was quite hilarious and to see how mad people get so quickly (laughs) sonia Sonia did catfish and it was interesting because catfish are their people there were much more polite yeah about it she yeah. she did awfully yeah and it was great to watch but they were more like uh, good okay. for you well, she's probably, probably working on something new or trying something this is you know this is what we're here for <laughs> we're at the comics <laughs> lounge people got upset yeah. especially because Bad. sonia was so cruel to tom yeah. with what she wrote it was just she really played to 
she knew what she was doing <laughs> and she's pure evil um so yeah it was it's great to watch and it was it was great to be there and see it <laughs> uh if people don't know you mate uh like if it's, this is their first time you know running into you where can they find like you know other bits of your work like what would you like to plug sure um i uh, follow me on the tw- on the twitters at ben russells um i do twitch as well Oh, yeah. I do a str- I do streams. I do like a little sort of variety radio. It's just basically a radio show and for fun uh, at uh, Bond Member, uh, twitch.tv slash Bond Member. Um, Hug the Sun on the YouTubins is a little web series that I did recently with Xavier Michaelides. And um, yeah, that's that's it. That's good. I reckon. That's Time good. to die. No, that- that's, that's, heaps. that's great. That's, that's heaps. heaps. That's heaps. <laughs> hey, mate, thank you for doing this. Thank you for teaching me how to make butter. Anytime. And, uh... Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks, man. <man. laughs>